This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we examine the financial and business news across the world. And we've been kicking off the year with a busy and tumultuous week. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me is Oanda Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earlham. Craig, as I say, it's been a surprising week already. We're only days into 2020. First of all, let's turn to the US, President Trump and, of course, Iran. Yeah, it's been an incredibly shocking start. I don't think anyone saw this coming. We always know that you can always expect the unexpected in many ways when it comes to President Trump, and especially in relation to certain issues, and one of which is the uh, his attitude towards Iran and his uh, regime's attitude, attitude towards Iran. But I don't actually think that many people saw something like this actually happening, maybe more sanctions, etc. But the, the killing uh, of Soleimani uh, was quite a shock, um, and it really did set off uh, a sequence of events which was quite unexpected and naturally whenever we see these kinds of uh, these kinds of events the first instinct is right what's the worst case scenario and how do we protect ourselves and as far as the markets are concerned in an issue like this naturally we see moves into safe havens so you look at something like gold traditional safe haven always does well when these middle east things uh, kick off when the risk of a conflict in the middle east uh, is, is 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 highlighted and then you also have the movement in oil prices um, now iran is not as much of an oil producer nowadays because of the sanctions that were imposed by the US. You may wonder, well, what with the spike that we're seeing in oil prices? But this is still conflict in the Middle East. There's still a lot of oil production in the Middle East. But more importantly, it's the Strait of Hormuz, which lies along the coast of Iran, where more than 20% of global oil production travels through on a, on, a, on a daily basis. We saw last year on, on a few occasions when certain tankers were targeted um, that, that this is a very vulnerable patch uh, and that a number of com- countries like Japan, for example, almost all of their oil actually comes via that stretch. So the the global oil market and therefore the global economy is very susceptible to anything that can happen in there. So it's almost a natural, easy target for Iran should they wish to strike back. Tensions de-escalated earlier on in the week after the missile strike, um, the retaliatory missile strike on US air bases. But now the investigation into what has happened with the Ukrainian passenger jet that um, crashed shortly after that um, strike that now brings um, the threat of more hostilities and certainly more political tension back into uh, back into the fore. Yeah, absolutely, and involving more countries. It was interesting. I remember thinking uh, that morning, firstly, my first thought was, there was no casualties in the attacks on the two U.S. air bases. And this was after a lot of fiery rhetoric from both sides. Uh, Iran at the time was weighing up 13 different options, and they obviously chose the one, it seemed, uh, that carried no casualties. I don't think the lack of casualties was an accident. I think they wanted to remind the U.S. that they are capable uh, of, of striking back and of inflicting pain and hurt and anguish. Uh, but they didn't actually want to do anything that would dramatically escalate the situation. And then obviously we had the reports that the the, the, the plane carrying I think it's what a hundred just uh, just over one hundred and eighty people, one hundred seventy eight people. people yeah. um, the that this had come down, and I was thinking there wasn't too much reported on it in terms of the link between the two. And I thought this seems to be a very strange coincidence. But to be honest, you don't want to take something in bad taste. You don't want to uh, link two stories that aren't being linked elsewhere for any substantial reason. So maybe these coincidences just do happen. And now we've got the uh, the, the, the reports overnight, which is um, very sad, which, which suggests that it may have been actually a stray rocket, potentially part of uh, the strike, which uh, which which hit the uh, which hit the plane was. Res- 
responsible for it coming down. So now we involve so, more countries because I think about half of the people on that plane were from Canada um, and a number of other countries as well uh, was carrying passengers. Yeah, so let's put some clarity. Obviously, at this stage, we're still in the region of uh, reports of, um, of Western intelligence agencies, but it may have actually been um, uh, a fear of retaliation by the US which led to um, this tragedy, which is that some um, anti-missile defences on Iran, Iran's side were in position that in the past, in other parts of the world, have also had problems with aircraft, which mm -hmm. this is the problem that we now have other countries which may have stood on the, the sidelines when it came to the US and Iran's rhetoric now being brought into this by the, the killing of, um, of innocent citizens, basically. Exactly. And this is this is part of the unintended consequences which can sometimes come with these conflicts. Um, without that, you're looking at a situation whereby um, one general um, has uh, has been assassinated, who many who who many believe was responsible for for many various deaths. Uh, and I don't I think while people were critical of uh, Trump's uh, actions here, I don't think many people were necessarily uh, disagreeing with the fact that that something needed to happen uh, uh, on this front. There was it was more the actions that were taken and the risk of uh, escalation that that could bring. So had this just ended with these attacks on the US bases, no casualties there, and both sides decided to de-escalate, then that's then 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 I don't think we'd be looking back on this in a year's time and many people may have even forgotten about it. But this is part of the unintended consequences why there's why you always have to uh, think very strongly about what whether these conflicts are worthwhile because this is a, a horrible, horrible unintended consequence potentially uh, of this uh, sudden and unnecessary uh, escalation and potentially explains why both sides did take a huge step back. Uh, on the morning, uh, the morning after the attacks on the U.S. air bases, because they realised that something horrible had gone wrong, which was never uh, intended to come as a result uh, of, of, the, of, of these incidents. Obviously, we will learn a lot more now over the coming weeks and months uh, as to what happened, what went wrong. I'm hoping cooler heads are going to prevail, and while the loss of life here is extremely sad, hopefully lessons will be learned about what can go wrong in these situations and why cooler heads need to try and sort these out these these things out more diplomatically than than, than resorting to, to the actions that we've seen now over the course of the last week like I say it's been it's been quite remarkable uh, first week obviously now now like I said there's more countries involved so maybe there can be a more of a coordinated and diplomatic response let's move to brexit where almost unnoticed amongst the tumult of other um, news stories um, Boris Johnson's brexit divorce deal passed its final reading in the House of Commons this week it's now going on to scrutiny in the Lords next week um, which isn't expected to give much in the way of delay to that. It's a far cry from the three meaningful vote defeats that Theresa May suffered on her deal, not to mention the countless other defeats around amendments and um, procedural um, uh, changes. I suppose we're now on to the next step of uh, negotiations, but it's worth, I suppose, just thinking about how far we've come, really, in just a few short months. It's amazing what a massive majority uh, will do for simplifying this process and removing the hostility in many ways from the process. Uh, we, it feels like this has kind of gone unnoticed this week. It hasn't necessarily been as newsworthy. We does, it doesn't feel like it's been... Naturally, there's been other things to talk about, but it feels like this hasn't really hit the headlines quite as much. And, uh, and, may, and that's what a majority brings. That's what Theresa May was ultimately hoping for. You think if she'd have got that massive majority that was being projected in the polls back in 2017 then you wonder how much further along 
the process we could be and what Brexit would actually now starting to be uh, to look like. But instead, it, it, it's progressing as it is. So now we move on to phase two. Phase two is not going to be any easier. The, the obviously having a massive majority does simplify things to an extent, and having a lack of dissent within the ranks is obviously helpful. Remember. We were, uh, I was um, very surprised by Boris Johnson's um, removal of certain MPs uh, a few months back, back uh, those who dissented uh, and those who voted against him. But it seems now that now that, that now he is reaping the rewards of this because now you have a situation where all are lined up behind him. So it seems like the next getting whatever he gets over the line will be a lot simpler, even if it is slightly softer because he's not necessarily quite as reliant on the ERG, for example. But we've got 11 months of tough negotiations and anyone who thinks it's going to be simple is probably kidding themselves but let's let, let's wait and see uh, how these things materialize we've spent months and years trying to anticipate these political events and it's been extremely difficult and many people have been wrong very wrong on many many occasions and not meaning to wade into exactly those kind of uh, you know potential mistakes at an early stage in the process but we've seen Boris Johnson and the president of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen um, having their first official meeting this week ahead of the those talks. 11 months, as you say, it's a tight deadline and there's going to be priorities that have to be hit and other things which are going to fall by the wayside, certainly for that 31st of December deadline. It looks as though consensus is moving towards goods being the priority, the simplest part of uh, trade negotiations, you could say, and also the most politically public. As a, some, as a market watcher, does that mean that businesses in service sectors are ones that you're looking to see how they'll deal with uh, potential changes by the end of the year? Well, you'd hope that come the end of the year, they'll have a much idea, much better idea of how they need to um, how they need to react to any changes which are going to come. You would hope that while businesses not they weren't ignored during the withdrawal discussions uh, but i don't think they'll feel like their their, their, their thoughts and their, their desires were necessarily uh, heard uh, as much as they want you would hope that over the next 11 months they'll be heard a lot more and there'll be a lot more involvement with businesses to try and get a better understanding of what type of trading relationship we want to have and allow them to prepare uh, much better for this deadline at the end of the year depending on uh, assuming of course that this is a strict deadline and it's not just going to be pushed back so hopefully we'll start to hear some more positive noises but like I say in a process like this and in a negotiation it's always very difficult because ultimately the, both negotiating sides keep the cards very close to their chest and they don't want to let too much publicly known because they have you have the ideology of where you want this to end and then you have the realism of where it actually will uh, end up uh, and, and ultimately the, the, the government is going to prioritise its objectives and what it's been voted in on you just hope that it's going to involve businesses in that. We have um, many uh, central bank uh, meetings coming up that we'll be keeping an eye on. It feels as though central banks across the world are pushing the, um, the baton back to government when it comes to actually affecting economies. And outgoing um, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney has echoed those kind of sentiments this week, um, also suggesting that more rate cuts, more, more stimulus is uh, on the horizon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's quite interesting, really. There, there is, there's meant to be a clear divide between monetary policy and fiscal policy, between government and central banks. 
And uh, people become very frustrated when politicians weigh in on central banks, and rightly so. You want that independence. That independence is very important. Over the years, over the decades, central banks have tend to stray away, to steer away from commenting on fiscal policy and commenting on government policy. They've they, they've deemed it not their job. Their job is purely monetary policy. So it's been interesting the shift over the last six months from various policymakers, Mark Carney, as you've uh, alluded to, even during the Brexit campaign to an extent, and he was heavily criticised for that Mario Draghi at the ECB. And, uh, 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 and now Christine Lagarde, uh, head of the ECB. More and more you're seeing policymakers have a view on fiscal policy uh, and have a view on why that's so much more important than it's been in the past because the extent to which that they can stimulate the economy and protect the economy has diminished greatly uh, after years and years of stimulus. So it is interesting that people aren't quite as frustrated about policymakers on the central bank side interfering on the fiscal side. But obviously, uh, I think it's because most people are broadly in agreement uh, with the fact with, with central bankers that we do need more on the fiscal side. It is time for governments to step up after a decade of looking after their own finances. It's amazing to me just the lack also of, I suppose, mea culpa here, that you think back to the Eurozone crisis of uh, not many years ago. I would imagine if you were a politician in Greece at that time, for example, or other European countries who were told that this was a central bank matter and not one for governmental uh, intervention, I think you'd not be feeling smug, but certainly sorry that this conversation has taken so long to come back round. Yeah, I think I, I think so. I think in many ways governments were given the benefit of the doubt when they said that we need to cut the when we need to tighten the purse strings. That debt is getting out out of hand, and we have to remember it's almost. I think central bankers' views now kind of are a reflection and have been a reflection for a long time of public opinion. At the end of the day, we look at we look at the UK in that 2010 campaign. Everything, everything that the, the Conservatives were, were campaigning on was fiscal conservatism. It was about the fact that we need to tighten the purse strings, we need to cut spending, we need to reduce government debt and uh, remove the, 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 the fiscal deficit. Now, obviously, you can have as many arguments as you want about what's, um, what, how, what they've achieved uh, towards that. Uh, the, but the, the, what's important and what, what we need to recognise is that public opinion has changed since then. Public opinion now supports more fiscal intervention, supports more spending. We saw that in the campaign here in the UK uh, with the Conservatives being forced effectively to promise to spend more because Jeremy Corbyn had um, gathered a lot of support because he wanted to spend more in various areas. Uh, and, and I think that's not just in the UK where we are seeing more support for that. Trump got into power promising to spend more on infrastructure and cut taxes and try and stimulate the economy using governmental spending. Uh, and others, you are, we are seeing other countries as well, have a say, follow suit. So maybe that's why central bankers do feel more comfortable weighing in on this and pushing uh, more for, uh, for, uh, for governments to do more. Because ultimately, it's the, the, the analogy which people keep using, and it's, it's very accurate, it's pushing on a piece of string with regards to central banks right now. It doesn't seem to matter how much force you use. The, the, the end result seems to be the same because they have run out of strong ammunition and it is time for governments to do more and i think that's that, that's why we are seeing this kind of change in attitude from central bankers and i don't expect it to change the difficulty we have right now is we've got the us where the government is willing to do more we have the uk where it seems the government is willing to do more europe which is probably most in need yes in the uk we have brexit but in europe it's been desperately in need of more fiscal intervention for many many years and unless Germany agrees to it, it seems that other countries are going to face this, the, the continued um, uh, resistance uh, that that, uh, that it has done for, for a decade. And Germany is still resistant to it. And until Germany changes its opinion and public opinion needs to change in Germany as well, 
then I think we are going to continue to see the same kind of pushback, which, which is both strange, uh, but all, and also unfortunate because, it, like I say, argue, arguably, this is the region that needs it most. Right. Building on that, by the end of next week, as we have a lot of data and also just sheer information coming out over the uh, the coming days, what are you looking for, and what will we know about the world economy by the end of that? So it's it's interesting. The what to come next week feels almost irrelevant compared to what we've just been discussing over the course of the past week. We've obviously got the trade deal that's going to be signed on Wednesday between the U.S. and China. I find it very interesting how how little. Uh, Attention! It's got that uh, that Xi Jinping is not going to be attending Washington to sign this trade deal. That it's going to be Vice Premier uh, Liu Hui. Uh, I, I find that really interesting, very symbolic um, potentially, because uh, you would expect such a massive trade deal to get the attention of the highest-ranking officer, effectively. Particularly as Phase Two, which is coming up, President Trump has already said he'll be heading to Beijing. Exactly, um, and, and or but not maybe before the election. That maybe this could wait till after the election. He says that this is when he's uh, he may have more power. I think it's because he thinks, uh, as we discussed in the end of year review, uh, that uh, I, I think this is purely because this is probably where it ends, and he doesn't want to be going into an election losing um, a negotiation for a phase two agreement. He need, he knows he needs to wait a lot longer than a year, and doesn't want to look bad effectively going into this uh, election campaign, and. So, yeah, we've got the agreement that's going to be signed on Wednesday. And then we've got a lot of data over the course of the next week. It doesn't feel that significant for some reason at this moment in time. We've got uh, the monthly UK GDP data, I think, on Tuesday. We've got UK and US retail sales and inflation data as well. Chinese GDP on Friday could be quite interesting, given how things are progressing uh, over there. We've got the ECB minutes as well on Thursday. But again, it just doesn't feel like that important an event. This was... Uh, Christine Lagarde's first meeting uh, and nothing really much happened. All the major announcements came a a couple of months early. So it feels like kind of data heavy, action packed week in many senses. But uh, I am curious whether it's just going to be overshadowed by more political chat and obviously the aftermath of everything we've seen over the course of the last week. Craig, a pleasure to speak to you as always. That's Senior Market Analyst at Oanda, Craig Earlham. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast, available from iTunes and all the places where podcasts live. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again next week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.